1: This podcast contains
2: explicit language. So that happened. This week, President Donald Trump moved forward on a number of policy fronts, and he also moved backward on a number of policy fronts. Very typical week, to be honest, but we now have the first Trump budget. And as you might expect, it really does a number on several high-profile domestic policy projects. We'll lay out where negotiations with Congress are likely to begin. We'll also bring you up to speed on the Congressional Budget Office's evaluation of Trumpcare, which was not good, and how the president's second attempt at a Muslim travel ban became another hilarious self-own. Meanwhile, our guest today is Ganesh Sitaraman, an associate professor of law at Vanderbilt University, who's written a new book titled The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution, In it, he goes back to our nation's beginning, uncovers our Founders' belief in the necessity of a strong middle class. It's a belief that's persisted for much of our history, but in recent decades, the vitality of the middle class has badly eroded. So if the middle class and our Constitution are inextricably linked, there is an inevitable question. Is our current state of income inequality a constitutional crisis? Well, perhaps we should start treating it that way. And finally... A few weeks ago, a group of American reporters took a journey to Ankara, Turkey. And the memories they made, oh, they will last a lifetime. Unfortunately, those will be memories of a trip undertaken on the promise that they would get exclusive access to a gaggle of high-ranking Turkish officials, including President Erdogan himself. But things did not go as planned. Instead, these reporters were taken down a strange, conspiratorial rabbit hole of bewilderment. Our own Jessica Scholberg was one of the reporters who made the trip, and she's here to tell you all about her zany adventures. I'm Jason Lincoln with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Scholberg. Here's what happened first. Hello there. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly excursion as we weed our way through the garden of bewilderment that is American politics. My name is Jason Lincolns. I am the editor of Eat Press at the Huffington Post. You know this. I say this every week. And every week I also say we are joined by Zachary Carter. Hi, everyone. And Arthur Delaney. Hi. Very, very brief and terse. Uh, we have a really good show. We're going to talk about income inequality, a great new book about it. Uh, our own friend Jessica Scholberg uh, went to Turkey and had a misadventure. But first, before we get to all that, we have to deal with the goings-on inside the Beltway and specifically all the weekly nonsense that our president did. Uh, let's start with the budget. Donald Trump has a budget, you guys. It's a big step for this guy who I don't think has ever budgeted any money properly in his life. Uh, so we got this going on. What's what, what, tell me? Tell me what's the broad strokes? How is the President's budget looking right now?
3: Well, first of all, a President's budget in general is fake news.
2: Yeah, that's true. It's always fake news
3: because it, we uh, have long since abandoned the so-called regular order process. Yeah, if we ever, I mean, it's been ages since you would have a the President send a budget to Congress. The relevant committees that with jurisdiction over federal agencies debated and talked with their own. I mean, this is like the uh, Schoolhouse Rock.
2: You remember how in the Obama years there'd be like a Republican representative senator who would present quote unquote Barack Obama's budget, right. put it on the floor. And of course, it really wasn't his budget. It would go down 99 to 1, and there'd be a headline and be like, Obama's budget doesn't even get one Democratic vote or some nonsense like that. Okay, so the the point Those is are some games.
3: It's, a, it's symbolic. Yeah. Exactly Maybe fake is the wrong word, but it's just such a hot word. It's an right now.
0: ideological statement of priorities. the 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 fact that Trump put out a sixty eight page document on Thursday morning, saying that he's going to increase spending on the military by like, like about $54 billion and decrease spending on EPA, on diplomacy at the State Department, and a bunch of programs that, that help poor people, doesn't mean that any of those cuts or bumps actually happen. Right. It means Trump is just saying, this is what I want to do. And even within the broad purview of the federal budget, this only looks at discretionary spending. Sure, sure. It doesn't look at at the types of spending which which constitute most of of what gets spent in the United states which which involves uh Medicare and social security, Kevin Trump um,
2: described it as uh, Mother Jones described it this morning as one long tweet uh and
0: so so it's a pr it's a pr yeah. event to, to get the, the, the ideology the, the out political
2: there. science way of saying this is that the president is signaling the areas on which he'd like to negotiate with congress um, so tell us where would he like to negotiate with congress arthur what what is shaping up to be
3: his sort of semi-priorities here they take some uh, some great wax at discretionary programs like the uh does he leave any discretionary programs he does but oh, okay. but for but not all which is uh, a little unusual to just totally whack something rather than, say, reduce its funding yeah, considerably, is a, particularly is a with uh, very high-profile and well-loved programs such as Meals on Wheels, the, block, the the grant that supports Meals on Wheels, which provides like a million meals a week to, to old people who are homebound, uh, just, just gets rid of it. <laughs> now, Meals on Wheels is also partly supported uh, through private donations, but... Uh, I think most of the Meals on Wheels organizations across the country get a significant, uh, if not a majority, of their funding from the government. So this would result in, you know, if it were to become law, old people going hungry.
0: Literally Great. taking food out of the mouths of old people with disabilities. Fantastic. That's what this will do.
3: Fantastic. Now, this this is uh, something that actually did happen in 2013. Yes, as a result of Republicans in Congress and the Obama administration. Saying if we can't craft a grand bargain, we're gonna have a so-called sequestration that cuts funding to everything. So meals on wheels was something that got lost dead. money, yeah. and then old people didn't get meals. And I actually interviewed uh, one guy in Roanoke, Virginia, who said, "You know what? If you know, I've got a, a stack of cans in my on my desk. Maybe somebody else has less food stockpiled than I do." So he voluntarily the 70-year-old man who uh, you know, couldn't walk. And so that that was real.
0: That's really bad. Uh, but speaking of things that the Obama administration voluntarily cut that now Trump wants to get rid of altogether, there's another uh, low-income heating assistance program. LIHEAP. Yeah, which just basically helps people pay their heating bills. Uh, it's not a huge program, right? That We're not talking about something the size of Medicaid or Social Security, but a whole lot of people get help with heating I don't even think we're talking about
2: something this. the size of, say, the security detail at Mar-a-Lago
0: every weekend, stacked right. up weekend after weekend. Right, we're, yeah. we're talking a few million dollars here, but the uh, or a few billion dollars here. I think it's one. It's like it's like
3: it's like, uh, it's like four billion dollars.
0: So four billion dollars, but th- this is not you know, <laughs> it, when you decide that you want to spend fifty-four billion more dollars on bombs. Uh, and you decide well. In order to pay for those bombs, we better take 4.2 billion dollars away from people being able to heat their homes in the winter. Um,
3: Less than four billion, yeah. actually. Yeah, nine, nine million households get like 400 bucks a year for heat. Yeah, and it doesn't even last all year. And so the budget is like, well, this is a low impact program,
0: and of course, that's, what, that's how they describe it—a low impact program because you only get four hundred dollars, so right. it didn't lift you out of poverty. It just meant that you got to have a warm house in December.
2: And naturally, you know, uh, carpooling liberals would be upset about the cuts to uh, public broadcasting and national endowment for humanities and arts, that kind of thing. That's always been yeah. kind of like under the under the scalpel, but. Um, the budget, we're calling it sort of fake news is going to be negotiated on. Maybe it isn't going to pass because of the regular order. We could just get another continuing resolution and out as lot has been through depending on how many votes Republicans could put but in I'm, for this and what it would look like at the end.
0: But it is it is nevertheless an ideological statement. And I, I just want to drill down into one particular quote uh, from, from the budget that I thought was really – it's kind of this amazing sort of combination of Orwellian doublespeak and just Randian madness um, – The budget eliminates the funding for the Section 4 Capacity Building for Community Development and Affordable Housing. This is like a $35 million program where the government provides grants and loans to nonprofits to, like, build and refurbish affordable housing units. Um, The the justification they did for getting rid of this tiny program is this program is duplicative of efforts funded by philanthropy. Usually when you see the word duplicative, it means, oh – Uh, They have a similar program in the Department of – like some other department that's more effective. Yeah. They don't say, ah, you know what? Charity does this. Okay, You know what? If charity was fixing affordable housing, then we wouldn't have poor people in shitty housing. It would be fine. It's not duplicative. Yeah. We have poor people living in shitty housing. It exists. It's a real thing.
3: It reflects a a broader conservative worldview that all the federal government's welfare work basically displaces – private sector charity and philanthropy that would otherwise fill the gap between what the free market provides for poor people, which has never really been true, but has always been a lovely fantasy. A lovely to, fantasy. Yeah.
0: It's odd that we've had poverty throughout human history. Yeah. Under various Along with rich people every, we're going to talk about this later with with <laughs> yeah. uh, with our, our our guests but uh but we've always had poverty somehow philanthropy hasn't been able to fix it on its own It's amazing well,
3: before we had social security and the you know most of the federal programs that help poor people uh when when someone got old if they didn't have money, we just stuck them in a poor house and said right. bye. well now
2: speaking of those programs uh the budget being what it is is something that's going to be negotiated about. Uh, but you said that the what's coming to Medicaid is much further down the road to becoming reality.
3: Yeah, and we had huge news this week on Medicaid through the Congressional Budget Office's score of the Republican health care bill, the Trump Obamacare care re- replacement. Yeah, Trump is it care. Trump care or Ryan care? It's both. It's both. It's bad cares. Yeah, bad care. Yeah, shit care. So that's that's a, a a little realer than the budget. That's actually moving. What through. makes it
2: realer? It's, Just
3: I. Uh, it's moving through Congress. Okay, it's, got, it's going through a committee process. There's going to be votes on it. It seemed like a remote possibility.
0: People are at least in the cave wall. looking at the shadow of Trump Care. Okay? okay, flickering right. on the wall. The budget is not even in the cave. The not budget in the cave, is yeah. in a hole in the ground, covered in sand.
3: Okay. The, the budget, yeah, the budget is in like a puddle hope, in the play cave. I hope everyone out there has read play
2: to knows what the references we're talking about. But uh, but
3: Trump Care is crawling toward the mouth of the cave. Okay.
2: Okay. Um, What's what's interesting is I think I guess a lot of people are under the impression, uh, I believe mistaken, that Donald Trump was not going to cut Medicaid, and in this case, he's cutting it quite a bit.
3: Yeah, big time. Bigly. I, I it's it's uh it, it largely accounts for the twenty four million pe- fewer people who would have insurance. Why do people?
2: Why do people walk out of this election thinking that Donald Trump wasn't going to cut Medicaid?
3: He was, said he wasn't going to cut Medicaid. Yeah, he said a lot of things. He
0: said explicitly, "I'm not going to cut your Social Security, your Medicare, or your Medicaid." He said it like a dozen times. But there was in a large public. He settings. was
2: running on the Republican ticket. Am I? Was did I miss yeah. that?
0: Yeah, and the Republicans got really freaked out about it because they're like, "Wait, that's not conservative." And then like, "Okay, well maybe we can make him do it." And now it looks like they're going to make him do it. They're 880 billion dollar cuts to Medicaid. It's just gonna happen. I just if wanna, they get their bill through. That's I, what the bill it's is. It's also
3: it goes a lot farther than repealing Obamacare, this repeal bill, because it undoes an expansion of Medicaid that allowed more people to be covered by that program.
2: And but a lot also, of governors
3: like. Right. Yeah. Thirty one governors are like, hell yeah. It also completely changes the way Medicare does business. It caps the funding that is allotted to it, and, and that is a big reason why. It's simple math. Fewer people would get help from Medicaid as a result. So it it go, it goes way farther than just repealing Obamacare. Uh, if you're taking his campaign statements at face value, which you which, shouldn't have done. Well, it's it's a hilarious debate. You know, do we listen to what Trump says? If you listen to him say, "I'm not cutting med," I'm not going to cut Medicare and Medicaid. This uh, is a massive betrayal.
2: It's yeah, obviously, obviously. If you believed him. It's a massive betrayal. If you were aware of like say Trump University and what that was, you were aware that he was probably lying all that time.
3: He's a he's a massive betrayer. Right.
2: Right, right, right. So the CBO came down and really, really punished this bill, and it's kind of set everyone scattering, except even Paul Ryan is now saying that he may have to amend this bill. Few days ago, he was basically intimating that it was this or it was nothing. But it looks like I don't know what the whip count is going to be on this, or if it'll even get that far. But I, I, I was indulging in fantasies that maybe House leadership might be the only people to vote for this thing.
3: Yeah, they, I mean, Democrats won't vote for it. Conservatives don't like it because it's not mean enough. That leaves Paul Ryan all I, alone.
2: So the CBO score with another extraordinary data point: the CBO score estimated that it would cost twenty-four million people to lose their health insurance which is a shocking shocking number one of the one of the kind of numbers that that republicans really wanted to dismiss out of hand paul ryan kind of didn't he said well i'm getting lower premiums and of course that's, a, that's, that's the one talking point his hat hangs on, is that, yes, if you, if you fail to provide sick people with health care, premiums will go down for those people who are left in the pool, the young and healthy and near Ooh, immortal but that's, people. That's
0: not even quite what it says. I know. That's I know not that. even quite what it says. I know yeah.
2: that. But here's the extraordinary data point I was going to bring out day, day after the CBO score leaks, we get, we get internal information from the White House. By their estimate, it was 26 million people going off. Health yeah. insurance.
0: They were expecting it to be even worse, and they knew that <laughs> when they crafted the plan and were still <laughs> promoting it publicly and saying this is a great way to expand access to care. Uh, it's, they're just lying to people is what they're doing. Well, it turns um, out
3: access to care actually means access in the same sense that you and I have access to a, a, Maserati. Giant, a fleet of mega yachts right, with like swimming pools on them. Right.
2: Theoretically, we have access to that. Theoretically, we have access to French laundry the restaurant in uh, in uh, the Bay Area, we have access to it. But, like, if we actually needed French laundry to live, That's we food? would be Fresh screwed. Lunch. Yeah, French it's a great restaurant. When we're all rich, we'll I go just, there. I
0: just also want to point out that Paul Ryan's BS about, about premiums being lower is BS. They're lower because the care gets worse. They're not yeah, lower. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. D- yeah. De- yeah. Deductibles go up. Wait,
3: they're not sure. lower. They're lower in 10 years from no. now.
0: But that's – but even when that happens, that they, they rise in the next two years. Right. But after – but once – even when they go lower, they go lower because the quality of the insurance goes down. They don't sure. go lower because competition has worked its magic and driven down prices. Right. They get lower because you're getting less. <laughs> that's right. what happens. Also, Health insurance people, becomes do, worse. Do most
3: people budget their household expenses with a 10-year budget window? Like most people. Like not. people on Hill? No, yeah. No? No,
2: they don't? No, we don't. Oh. Sorry. I, I, guess be, ju- I guess I'm different. I could
0: be I could be dead in 10 years. So, so while we're talking about Trump, you know, and his campaign promises, uh, he did promise to make a complete and total shutdown of all Muslims trying to come into this. Country. I remember
2: that. And again, should I have taken it seriously? Who knows? But it's one of the few things that he was consistent about all throughout the campaign. And when he attempted his first executive order that would uh, ban Muslims, guess what it did? It banned Muslims from from seven
0: countries, and it caused huge problems, and it caused the courts to freak out. Because it's unconstitutional to ban people based on their religion.
2: Right. And you had Rudy Giuliani basically saying openly, it was a Muslim ban. You had Stephen Miller saying the same thing on TV. They basically buried themselves in their own statements and self-offered testimony about what their plan did, and the courts vomited all over it and sent it back. And- now, their version 2.0, which was only a little bit more mild in its approach to this issue, uh, we talked about this last week.
0: Less effective, just as racist.
2: Less effective, just as racist, and if and we don't want to get into the specifics of it. Go back and listen to last week's podcast. We go into specifics there. But uh, the courts have again vomited this back out into the public's – because saying, the
3: no. courts are taking him literally. Right. All those times he said he wanted to ban Muslims and his, and Stephen Miller said that this is the same as the last yeah. order. The this court's are like, a, oh, well, okay, then no. This is a you can't do it then.
2: This is a hilarious cell phone. And it, the, the hilarious cell phone got even more hilarious Wednesday night when at a rally Donald Trump told a room full of hundreds of people out loud with a camera pointed at him. That he wanted to go back to the old, less watered down Muslim ban,
0: <laughs> which he can't do because the courts ruled against it, so it's illegal.
2: Right? He remember he was he said, "I'll see you in court," and then it was, and then it was, see, I, I, "I won't actually see you there." We are in court, man. Right? Judges were like, "We're already here,
0: man." But ju- but Judge Judy's not here.
2: Ah, <laughs> uh, it's been a, it's well, it's been a week. Um, another one of those effed up weeks in our lives. God knows when it ends. My ten-year budget plan is to maybe be off this Earth. Maybe that'll be the thing that stops stop saying
0: that. Uh, he is uh, Trump. Is is uh, his budget includes uh, funding for a uh, a flyby mission to Europa? Uh, so that's I one volunteer. way you can get off Earth.
2: I volunteer to go on the flyby mission to Europa, provided it doesn't come back. All right, uh, we have a really great show for those of us who want to stay on this planet. Uh, please stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, uh, longtime listeners, you probably know, big topic of our conversation a lot of times is the middle class and how badly it's eroded in recent decades. And you have to understand that's a little bit unusual for us to be in the straits we're in. Uh, because historically, uh, statesmen have risen in the defense of the middle class. Uh, and it's all really based on the fact that when this nation was founded, we cared about the middle class. Something has changed. And it's time to maybe start looking at income inequality as not just an economic crisis, but a constitutional crisis. Joining us to talk about this, we have, of course, Zach Carter, partner in crime. And uh, from Vanderbilt Law School and the Center for American Progress. we have Ganesh Sitaraman, who's written the book that we're going to frame this whole discussion around, The Crisis of the Middle-Class Constitution. Ganesh, thanks for being with us today.
5: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
2: Um, I just wanted to just get off the, – the, right off the bat, you know, we've – there's been a lot of books about income inequality recently. Uh, Thomas Piketty wrote a book that traced uh, – global economic trends through uh, hundreds of years of history, you've gone back to our nation's founding. What, is, what was it that drew you to this particular way of looking at income inequality?
5: You know, there's been a lot written about inequality from the perspective of economists, policymakers, moral philosophers. Uh, but i 'm a constitutional law professor, and so when I started thinking about this topic, I went back to the founders as good constitutional law professors do and and looked at what they had been thinking about economic inequality uh, the divides between the rich and the poor and It was something that they were very worried about for most of the history of the world. People were worried that in unequal societies, the rich would oppress the poor or the poor would try to confiscate the wealth of the rich, and the result would be revolt strife, revolution, uh, and that this instability was a serious problem.
2: Now, you've, you've actually uncovered a lot of unique thinking as far as the founders are concerned. Uh, they had some pretty specific assumptions about the way a strong middle class would function, how it related to the Constitution, and they instilled some of their own unique values into that document. What is it about the American Constitution uh, as far as it's thought about a strong middle class, uh, separated from other constitutional documents that uh, our founders may have used as their sort of inspiration or, 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 at, least, or at least predated our own.
5: So the real radical thing about our constitution is a shift that it makes from the prior structures of governments that existed in the ancient world and in Europe. So to deal with this problem between rich and poor, what most governments did is that they built economic class right into the structure of government. So in England, for example, you've got a house of lords for the wealthy. Right. You've got a house of commons for the poor. And this means that both classes have a check on the other and that's what creates stability. We don't have anything like that. We don't have a House of Lords and a House of Commons. We don't have a Tribune of the Plebs like they had in ancient Rome to protect Mm -hmm. the interests of ordinary people. Uh, And the reason we don't have that is because the founders looked around and they thought that America was uniquely equal economically in the history of the world. I know that sounds crazy to say today. It seems surprising to us. But if you think back to the late 18th century, you know, America is a series of colonies on just the eastern seaboard, sparsely populated, small towns. Uh, There aren't that many people here. And the real center of the action, London, Paris, are, are real metropolises, thousands and thousands of miles away. And so when the founders look across to Europe... They see how different it is. There's no feudalism in America. There's feudalism in Europe. There's no hereditary aristocracy in America. There's an aristocracy in Europe. Those are differences that make them think we're really equal here.
2: This is kind of the stuff that fired the imagination of Alexis de Tocqueville when he came to America. Exactly.
5: Tocqueville yeah. talks exactly about this. And what's shocking to him is how equal America is. And that's why America, he says, can have democracy. And it's see, because
0: we're equal. It's what I find really fascinating about your book is that these – you know. The founders, Tocqueville; these are these are people that you usually hear like Rand Paul and the libertarian right celebrating. Um, your book is not a celebration of libertarian thinking, um, but obviously, you know, we have. I, I, you make a distinction in your introduction between equality under the law and people who are excluded from from the protections of the law, because clearly, you know, there is there are these classes of people called slaves, (laughs) who have it pretty rough early on. And other classes of people, various American Indian tribes, have it pretty rough. How how does how does the, the treatment of these these sort of marginalized groups relate to the the sort of constitutional thinking you're talking about?
5: Yeah, I think pretty rough is an understatement. I mean, it's you know women, slaves, Native Americans. Uh, these groups are not treated well in in, in the founding, and we shouldn't um, paper over that at all. Uh, it's a serious problem, and we should condemn that. It it, it, it was not appropriate uh, how how all these groups were treated in that period. Um, but I think if we're going back to the history, we need to look at it from the time period and from the perspective of people at the time. And and the tradition that I'm talking about, the idea you need a middle class to have a republic, uh, the idea is that everyone within the political community should be relatively equal. But it leaves open a really big question. Who's in the political community? And that's the fight that we've had over generations. And there's a separate tradition that we can see, um, hotly contested. But over time, we've expanded the population we consider as part of the political community. This is a tradition of inclusion that brought in women, African-Americans over the generations. And I think the key thing, though, is when we think about the political community, we have to understand that everyone in it needs to have the opportunity to join the middle class. And that's something that our statesmen uh, in many previous decades understood, whether it's uh, Republican uh, reformers after the Civil War um,
0: or people in the civil rights movement. You uh, Well, tell us about Tom Watson. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories in the book.
5: So there's a guy named Tom Watson who's from Georgia. Um, and in the 1890s, uh, he tried to organize through the populist movement Uh, African-Americans and whites, working-class whites and working-class African-Americans in the South in order to overthrow the power of the wealthiest people uh, who he thought were uh, controlling society uh, as if they were a landed aristocracy. Uh, And he made these efforts. He had African-Americans speak at rallies uh, with him, which was shocking to people in the South at the time. Um, And he tried to organize them explicitly on grounds that united they would be able to actually make change that would help working people. Uh, What happened to Tom Watson is that the elites in in the South um, fought back. Uh, They used force. They used violence. They used fraud, fraud, bribery, uh, and they used race in order to try to divide the working class people and conquer. um, And unfortunately, they succeeded. Um, Tom Watson lost his election. Uh, There were many threats against uh, his life. Um, And years later, when he tried to uh, revive his political career, uh, he— Found that the only way he could do it was by embracing white supremacy uh, and betraying everything he had believed in his in his younger days uh, and so this the rise and fall of of Tom Watson or, or maybe it's the fall and rise uh, because he later did win political power is sort of a sordid tale of of how these uh, traditions can come together at times but also be broken apart by by some of these fractures
2: and yet there's a lot of momentum the way you tr- trace the history from the Constitution on I feel like from time after time, there's a robust defense of the idea that income equality is a virtue and a strong middle class is a virtue and People did step to the fore to try to create that kind of equality and yet you it's it's undeniable that a certain amount of that momentum has been has been lost what What do you attribute? The, the sort of the loss of momentum to where do we sort of stray off the path we are on because you know as recently as as middle of the century we had the New Deal prior to that we had uh, big robust efforts to break up trusts um,
0: the Great Society with Johnson in the 60s. yeah yeah and
2: and and these these things mattered to a lot of people they inspired not just statesmen but the masses too.
5: Well, I think there's two. I think the, the big difference in thinking about this as a constitutional problem, a problem for our republic, a threat to our republic, uh, that shift I think happens after World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, until then, there's a lot of people who talk about equality in these terms of republics and constitutions. After World War II, there's a couple changes. The first is that the new dealers won a really big fight. They won the fight to say that the Constitution allows the federal government to regulate the economy, and so debates about economic policy shifted from constitutional terms to just being about regulation, and that was a big change. The second big change was the Cold War. We now moved from thinking about uh, aristocracies versus republics, and you have to remember in all the 19th century, most of the early 20th century, the rest of the world, there were a lot of aristocracies, there were a lot of monarchies. After World War II, the real fear is communism against capitalism. And so the egalitarian tradition in America gives way to fears over communism. Then the third big thing is we succeeded post-World War II, coming out of the Great Depression. We had what economists called the Great Compression, the... Largest peacetime growth in terms of uh, middle class, Um, GDP is up, median wages for workers are up, everybody is doing better. Uh, and, and that's I think and it's, he
2: would argue that this is you know build back up from a great destructive period too. We all got kind of fat and happy, sugar high off the economic growth we had.
5: But at the same time, we don't. And, and as he shows, though, we didn't have the same levels of deep inequality right, either yeah. on the top or on the bottom end. And part of that was a function of policy, right? At this time period, we regulated Wall Street um, in the in the 1930s after the depression. Uh, we invested in middle class people and in jobs through infrastructure, research and development. We sent a generation of people to college through the GI Bill. And we tried to address poverty too. The Great Society that you mentioned before, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Head Start, all of these programs worked and we ended up with a lot less inequality in that time period.
0: So we were talking about Trump's budget earlier on the show. Uh, His budget director, Mick Mulvaney, was on... Morning Joe, I think that's what the show's called. Yeah, maybe you guys have heard of it. Um, and he was trying to defend uh, cutting the cutting Big Bird, eliminating funding for Sesame Street and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And he said, "Look, you can't expect the coal miner out there to pay for Big Bird." And I, you know, I think that's just sort of a stupid and funny thing to say, but the 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 fact of the matter is that the coal miner probably isn't paying for Big Bird. Most likely, a low income person working a, a working class job is accepting large numbers of transfers for the federal government and paying little if nothing in federal income taxes. That's the whole point behind Mitt Romney's forty seven percent comment. Do we, ha- you know, can we solve inequality with with just transfers down to people alone? Is is that just if if people accumulate large fortunes and are taxed, does does that get us back to like constitutional? Safety, or do we need to do something else within the economy to make things work?
5: So I I think we need to do two things, and and as I argue in the book, both of these come from thinking about the Progressive Era, the last time when we really faced this big shift in inequality. And the Progressives did two things on the economic side. The first thing is they recognized that we do have to do something about income and income taxes. And so what they did is they actually passed a constitutional amendment to allow for the income tax. And as a result, for a century, we've had a progressive income tax, where the wealthier pay more uh, because they have a greater ability to pay. Uh, And that is also very appropriate because they gain a lot of benefits from living in a society that is stable, that has the rule of law, that has investment in education and infrastructure that allows businesses and entrepreneurs to succeed. But at the same time, the progressives also understood that we had to make sure the economy worked for everybody, not just try to redistribute wealth from the rich to everyone else. And so the big invention they came up with was antitrust laws. Uh, and antitrust laws were designed to break up uh, big corporations and conglomerations of economic power. Uh, and the idea was that if you had a nation of small proprietors, medium-sized businesses, small businesses, everybody would have a, a greater stake in the economy and would be more successful. And the the uh, the economy would work for ordinary people, not just for the wealthiest who happen to own the biggest corporations.
2: One another thing you get at in your book is you, you you talk about the role of sort of the rise of political corruption, of money in politics, uh and how that how that played a role in establishing income inequality. Obviously with when you have President Trump in the White House, we're all concerned with things like conflicts of interest, self-enrichment, but I still feel like these arguments and the cases that you can make in this arena are still very abstract to people. You know the president violates the emoluments clause. He gets rich. But it's hard to really make the, make the connection between the president enriching himself and money being taken from the pockets of the citizenry, this sort of wealth versus commonwealth thing. Is there, is there a straight line you can draw between that kind of political corruption and the, the sort of uh, the, the entrenched income inequality that that's,
5: we, we're living with now? So I think there is a straight line, but it's actually not a straight line. It's a, it's a circle and it's a vicious circle. And this is something that theorists would have uh, easily recognized from the time of Aristotle onward. And what they would have said is when you start having inequality, the wealthiest people start thinking that they're more worthy and that they should govern. But they also have different views. And so their views tend to be toward policies that are going to help themselves. They – want to cut taxes on themselves, they want less regulation on themselves. They want to serve their own interests. And so when the wealthy start governing, they rewrite the laws, they reshape the system of politics in order to uh, help themselves get wealthier. Um, but now this just restarts the cycle. Right. And that's what makes this so challenging is because you have a system now where as every turn uh of the cycle, it becomes harder and harder to break free of this. So I think Washing there is a line. From hell.
2: Yeah, exactly. The washing machine with a brick in it—it's gonna die if someone doesn't stop the brick.
0: Well, I mean, that, that, so that's that's the big question: like, are we doomed? I mean, you, it, can the American Constitution survive uh, high levels of inequality? Yeah, this has can been we described as
2: a doom loop of oligarchy. If it seems to me like that's a fait accompli now, that we're in the doom loop. Can we break out of the doom loop?
5: So I, I think we can break out of it. Um, and and one of the exciting things about uh, writing a work of history like this is that you see people throughout our history who have done this before. Um, and who have fought really hard to try to break out of what they saw was their own doom loops of oligarchy. Yeah. Um, and they acted. And what's amazing about it is there's two sets of things that, that that happened. You had leaders that were interested in this, that wanted to act, and that were ready to take action and lead on these issues, even when it meant fighting people in their own parties, even when it meant fighting against people in their own class. You know, Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt were both traitors to their class. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it also required... A, massive mobilization around the country. There were movements throughout our history, workers, labor, uh, just general political movements. People were out in the streets in a lot of these cases pushing for change uh, and trying to get change. And that's when change happens. It happens when there's a combination of leadership and when there's a combination of citizen action to try to push leaders to make those changes.
2: I mean it sounds to me like one of the things that I think uh, uh, liberals are facing right now is the need to sort of do what Tom Watson attempted to do. Which was to put find common cause between groups that right now are sort of a little bit antagonistic with each other economically speaking.
5: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, that everyone in this country needs to do is think about how we can work together to address these problems of the collapse of the middle class. Um, and ha- and 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 the key thing here is that we have to recognize that this isn't just about some abstract point of economic policy, and it's not about uh, your wealth or mine. Uh, this is about all of us, and it's about the shared project that we're in that's called America. And if you really believe in the Constitution, if you believe in having a representative democracy or a republic, um, you have to be engaged in wanting to rebuild the economic fortunes of everyone uh, in our society.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, the book is its a great book. Uh, historically, uh, the, the, the way you present the history of those who have risen in defense of the middle class, so muscular and vital to read even now. It was really quite just an engrossing and really sublime read. I really recommend people go out and get this book. It's called The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. Sobering, but also hopeful. Ganesh Sitaraman, thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll come back. Thanks so much. I'd love to. And we will be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher on the podcast charts. It does make a difference and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at sothathappened at We really do appreciate your suggestions and we often follow up on stories and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. Hey, welcome back. We're back with Arthur Delaney. Yo. And uh, joining us now to talk about one insane trip to Ankara in Turkey. We have our friend Jessica Schulberg, aka Natsek Daria. How are you doing, Jessica?
4: It's great to be back. It's really nice to have <laughs> you.
2: It's really nice to have you because I think I think that when you left on this trip to Turkey, everyone imagined that maybe we would sit down and talk about how you had a historic interview with uh, Turkey's leader. Uh, President Erdogan.
4: That would have been nice,
2: and and I and you, if I'm not mistaken, went to Turkey in the belief in that the you would be having <laughs> that interview.
4: In the hope we knew it was a long shot, but that's that was the hope. It'd
2: be a huge get, yeah. be a huge get. We'd love to have some audio of President Erdogan. Yeah, but um, but things kind of went off the rails a little bit on this trip. Just a I little. Gather. So tell us about okay. Tell us about what it was that. You, th- How did they approach you to go on this trip?
4: So about a month ago, it was the end of January. I was at a bar in the San Diego airport drinking my last craft beer of the trip before returning to D.C. And I got a phone call from a guy who used to be a hill flack and is now just a Washington flack for a PR firm. And he says, hey, I have this crazy opportunity for you, um, this Turkish PR guy who's working with the government, um, wants me to get together some American journalists to go to Turkey, interview Erdogan, the president, um, also the prime minister, the head of the intelligence services, the chief of staff to the military, and the foreign affairs minister. So this
2: is this is like a buffet of amazing. And I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. This is
4: I'm like kind of drunk. I'm like, I, I don't believe you, but whatever. I'm about to get on a plane. Like, send me details. He says that the government wants to. Um, pay our airfare, pay for our hotels, pay for our meals. I said, well, obviously we can't accept that. But, you know, if the access is good enough, I think my editors would send me. So keep me posted. Over the next several weeks, I guess, over a month, we have all these back and forths. You know, what type of guarantees do you need to go? Um, I said, in addition to some level of guarantee that these interviews will happen, um, I need to know that they'll be on the record, that we'll cover a wide range of topics that we won't just focus on. Um, these two key issues that have been really critical to Turkish government officials, which is us holding or us – this cleric, Fethullah Gülen, who Turkey accuses without evidence of plotting a coup against them in July. Um, he lives in Pennsylvania and we are not They've wanted to over. extradite him. Yeah, so it's basically this where it be a huge down. extradition.
3: This coup crackdown in Turkey is uh, the whole reason for the government's current situation. Big deal in Turkey. Big deal. You may have heard about it.
4: Right. The coup was July 15th. Um, It failed. It was even people who are very critical of Erdogan uh, celebrated that the coup didn't happen because they do like having a democratically elected government, even one that's becoming more authoritarian, um, and rejected the idea that the military would try to overthrow the president. Um, Any kind of happiness from the opposition that Erdogan survived was quickly uh, diminished or minimized by the fact that he started rounding up... uh, Civil pretty service. much, pretty much anyone look, yeah. who he said had ever been tied to this random cleric, who it is worth noting was a close ally of the president up until they had a big falling out a few years ago.
2: Okay, so you're on, you 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 get this you get this offer. You're on your way to uh, Ankara. Uh, I imagine you're a little bit skeptical, but hopeful that you're going to get some quality interviews out of this trip. Mm-hmm. And then things take a bit of a radical left (laughs) turn.
4: So I went um, a couple days early. I wanted to do my own reporting with uh, Kurdish opposition people, civil society people, make sure that it wasn't strictly a government junket um, and that I would get some decent reporting out of it no matter what. So I went on Monday for a trip that was going to start Wednesday – or sorry, I went Sunday. Uh, Monday night, we get an email from the guy organizing this and he says, hey, I'm hearing from some of the other reporters on the trip who are based in Istanbul and have good contacts in the president and the prime minister's office that we aren't on the schedule. Um, Don't worry. These interviews are being arranged at such a high level that they're not even on the schedule, but it's totally happening. Mm. And I was like, huh, it sounds like bullshit, but we'll see. You know, things work pretty chaotically in the Middle East. Like, I'll hold out hope.
2: And your yeah.
4: <laughs> So Wednesday morning we have – it's supposed to be Wednesday and Thursday. We have a smattering of high-level interviews. Um, the day before we were told, Intel guy is out, which, you know, surprise, surprise. But don't worry. We're going to get the justice minister instead, who should be pretty interesting given that there's this big extradition battle. Like we'd love to talk to the justice minister and, you know, what evidence do you guys actually have against this cleric? Because our justice department is basically saying nothing. Um so we have our, our first interview of the day with the deputy prime minister. Um it was really interesting. He took two hours of his time, he was very willing to kind of go off of his own off of his regular portfolio, engage in a lot of issues, it was great. Um that was our only substantive interview of the day. Jeez. So for the rest of the day we kind of just get dragged around on this big sightseeing adventure. Uh We kept being told, like, the interviews are still happening, but, you know, the justice minister had to push back because you asked so many good questions about evidence against Gulen that he's really busy preparing, you know, this briefing for you. And all of us are like, hmm, I don't think the justice minister would pause his day to compile evidence against his cleric (laughs) for a bunch of random reporters. Also, he should probably know these things off the top of his head since that's literally the only thing that he's talking about these days. But in the meantime, we're going to the mausoleum that has the ruins of Atatürk, who's the founder of modern Turkey. It's much more impressive than our monuments to our founding fathers. Uh, we saw the ruins of Parliament. The The Parliament building was bombed during the coup and a lot of the damage they've left in place so that future generations can see.
3: And your your story has a photo of one of these uh... <laughs> One of these damages.
4: So I don't want to downplay the damage to parliament. I mean it was it was traumatic and I can't imagine the feeling we'd have if our congress – well, I shouldn't make jokes. OK, anyways. Um, our congress should not make be sure bombed. Big so jokes. We have a whole show congress, called Designated congress Survivor on the TV. Congress should not be bombed But there is also this um, hole in the ground in front of the parliament building and it's not a particularly deep or impressive hole. Um, and that is also being preserved for future generations to see. It's like this maybe two-foot really deep tiny patch a of hole dirt. in front of the building. It used to be a patch of grass. Now it's just a dirt hole. It's covered by a tent with the Turkish flag. Um, when I kind of asked if they were still keeping it around, the guy said, yeah, you know, it used to be a lot deeper, but all the rain and the snow was kind of filled it in. Mm-hmm. Like you could tell he was kind of pissed that the hole didn't look all that impressive anymore. We do that. We hung out in some compound for a while that's used to entertain guests in Ankara. We're getting pretty pissed. It's like 5.30 or so. We've had one interview all day. It's like half our trip is done. Um, And the mayor of Ankara walks in, and he's this kind of energetic Everyone in the AKP, Erdogan's party, has the same mustache. He has that mustache. He walks in, and he's holding a single red rose wrapped in a black ribbon that he gives to all of the female reporters for International Women's Day. This is the mayor of Ankara, Meli Gokchuk. Um, we're all pretty weirded out. Um, he tells us that, don't worry, Justice Minister Erdogan. It's all happening like late, late tonight, but right now you get to talk to me. Um, but before we do an interview, I need to take you downstairs into this weird home theater thing he has and show you a video with never before seen footage of the coup. Um, and his chief of staff had told us about this video. He says it's really bloody. The women might not be able to watch it; they might get kind of squeamish because you know women are sensitive.
2: No wonder he brought you a rose. Right.
4: And so we all say, you know, we've seen a lot of coup footage videos. Like it'd be really great. We understand how bad it was. It'd be really great if we could just ask you some questions. No, 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 no. no. We have to go downstairs. We go downstairs and it's like the craziest video I've ever seen. It was just so badly produced and it's just like shot after shot after shot of like bloodied people, missing limbs, screaming. And he's standing next to it with a microphone or he's sitting next to it. We're on these like velvet armchairs with a big dessert platter and he has his microphone and he's live narrating it and he's like, I was on television 18 times the night of the coup. (laughs) I was like, what?
3: Sounds like they're really milking this coup.
4: Right. So coup's video is 24 minutes long. It ends. All the reporters are, like, pretty shocked. We try to start out by saying, you know, like, y- you seem to think that the West really doesn't appreciate how bad this coup is for you and that we're not taking it seriously and we're not extrading Gula and Like, you're seeming to imply a lot of bad intention on the part of the West. Like, what would be what would be the U.S.'s purpose for this? We're your ally. We need you in Syria. Like, what would be the U.S.'s purpose and he starts to go on about how, well, the, you know, the U.S., um, Obama and Hillary created ISIS, um, just like Donald Trump said. And, you know, Donald Trump said it three times, so it must be true. And, and, you know, ISIS is a fake organization because if they were really Muslim, then they would be attacking Israel and they haven't attacked Israel. And all of us are like, holy shit, like what are, have what are we gotten into and so at that point, everyone's sort of trying to figure out how to deal with the fact this that This is just
2: like straight, mainline, high-test conspiracy theory nonsense he's giving you. So
4: everyone's sort of—the tr- people who live in Turkey, the reporters who live in Turkey, know that this is standard for this guy. The rest of us broadly knew that he was kind of kooky, but we didn't know how kooky. Um, this reporter from the Financial Times, Mehul, who is hilarious, he raised his hand. You know, we have sort of said to him at this point that we're kind of frustrated that we want to ask— The president, all these issues about the coup. He's a municipal, you know, Melly Gokchuk is a municipal politician. You know, he's not really best positioned to answer questions of national foreign affairs. He gets very upset. Um, Mehul says, okay, 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 let's change the subject. Um, Mr. Mayor, can you please tell me your theory about earthquakes? And all of us are like, what the hell? You know, why are you asking him this? And he goes, oh, of course, I, I would love to. You see, There's two types of earthquakes. Um, One type is the naturally occurring earthquake that occurs all the time. But then there's these triggered earthquakes. So one time the U.S. and Israel took a big boat into the sea and sailed up to the Gulf Coast and tapped on a fault line to extract the energy. And it triggered a huge earthquake, 7.4 magnitude. And it's all Israel and the U.S.'s fault.
2: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, God. (laughs) <laughs> that reporter knew exactly how. To exactly,
4: happen. and all of us are looking at the reporter like, "Oh, this is this is a thing." Like,
2: this is the thing that is crazy. So yeah. this trip
4: to Turkey turned out a little bit
2: goofy. It was pretty goofy. Wait, so the second day, any, any I, I gather you never met with Erdogan.
4: We did not meet with Erdogan. So after that, um, about half the reporters went back to the hotel in a huff and a puff. Um, we I can we, imagine. We didn't want to have dinner with him. Um, we were invited to dinner. We kind of assumed like the trip's over, no more interviews, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, we find out that we are actually going to get an interview with the prime minister, Yildirim. So you meet with him the next morning. It's like this big, beautiful, lavish breakfast interview. It goes pretty smoothly. Um, at the end of it, a uh, New York Times reporter says, you know, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. But I have to ask, you know, were you aware that we were told when we come here that we would also interview the president, the head of intelligence, the foreign affairs minister, the military officer? And Yildirim looks shocked and he's like – basically says, why the hell would you ever think we would ever let you talk to our intel chief? He said, I don't know. That's what we were offered. And he says, what, what are you talking about? Like who organized this trip? I was, I was asked if I would meet with you two days ago and I cleared my schedule to make time for you.
2: Oh, my goodness. And
4: it becomes pretty clear that like this whole itinerary, this whole schedule, this whole letter we had signed was kind of just bullshit. Um, so the New York Times reporter says, oh, well, it was the mayor of Ankara's office. And the mayor's chief of staff is in the room and he kind of just buries his head and looks down, kind of embarrassed. Um, We heard through the grapevine that the prime minister was pissed. Um, He called the mayor, chewed him out, called the justice minister and says, you absolutely have to meet with these guys. Like, we're going to get destroyed. Um, So we did end up we had to change our flight from Ankara back to Istanbul, bump it to like pretty late in the night, Um, had a last minute meeting with justice um, asked if they had any information that would finally convince us definitively of Gulen's guilt, that didn't happen. But it was still uh, valuable to see their perspective. Wow,
2: that uh, hard hard to imagine. Have you talked Have you talked to the person who set this trip up in the first place? Oh god, Should he he was
4: out? he was mortified. I actually feel very bad for him. I didn't shoo him out. He was just as misled as we were. How typical is this? This sounds – I mean – I don't think this you, is very typical.
2: Yeah. I mean <laughs> you, you, you say that you, – you, you've said before and you said today that, that in the Middle East things tend to move at a, at, a, at a weird at a weird pace. There are all kinds of curveballs. But this sounds to me like someone got way, way, way out over their skis in unprecedented fashion and and it just went sideways. This, it was just crazy.
4: I mean what's crazy about this All these this promises is... that
2: couldn't have possibly been delivered on. So
4: we kind of assumed like, oh, this is – a pretty impressive itinerary that they're giving to us. I bet you some of these people are going to flake out, you know, like while we were there, um, Turkey and Germany got in a huge spat because Turkey basically called Merkel a Nazi. um, foreign must try to fly out. Like that would have been a, sure. Yeah. Shit happens, whatever. Um, What was crazy about this is that this whole itinerary was just like, it wasn't based on anything. And it was, It was kind of pitched to us, like you know, this is some critical a critical period in U.S. Turkish relations. These are,
3: and it is right. It is. is. We we
4: definitely rely on each other a lot. Trust between both sides is eroding rapidly. It's very, very bad. It has huge implications for the region if we can't get along. Um, So the idea of you know top U.S. reporters coming to Ankara and hearing Turkey's perspective and trying to sort of like bridge this gap was really interesting. But this wasn't. an effort made by the government of Turkey on a na- on a national level this is like some crazy local mayor just decides that he really wants to show reporters this video and so he lures them into his theater with a, prom- a totally undeliverable promise of meeting with the president and then leaves the president and the executive branch left scrambling to clean up his mess so you don't have 14 angry reporters from these huge western news outlets you know writing terrible stories
2: that's just, just- remarkable It's hard to imagine. Uh, Would you uh, Would you go back? Absolutely. (laughs) Recommend. Recommend. Jessica. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad someone from here went on this crazy adventure. Uh, What an amazing, weird story. What a mess. Uh, I hope you had a good trip. It was great. All right. Uh, Well, thanks for talking to us about this. Uh, You can look for Jessica Schulberg's story on our on our site, um, and follow Jessica all the stuff she does because it's great. Uh, Thank you, and we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we are joined by professor and author Ganesh Sataraman, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Scholberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already.